1 Corinthians 6, 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ? and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Here's a word for our generation. Flee from sexual immorality. Will you read that with me? Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You are not your own. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Holy Spirit, thank you for eternal truth. Thank you, Father, for loving us as your children enough to be able to hear your heart concerning our sexuality. Thank you for not leaving us to figure it out in a culture which sends conflicting, debased, and mixed signals. Thank you that you are the plumb line and that you have designed us for the beautiful gift of sexual intimacy within the confines of marriage, to enjoy it. But Lord, apart from that, you've said, no. Help us to align in this moment with your heart and your word. Help us disentangle ourselves from the message of our culture that tells us everything is okay sexually and help us return to you. Move the boulder out of the way, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that believes. In Jesus' name, amen. So, you may find it interesting that most of the New Testament teaching concerning human sexuality comes from two men who were not married. Obviously, the Lord Jesus Christ never had a wife. And the Apostle Paul, at least at the time of his apostolic ministry beginning, he was unmarried. 
And so Jesus and Paul, Jesus being fully human, Paul being fully human without divinity, they understand the complexities of what they said and what Paul wrote. So this is not somebody who is detached from um, the topic. They lived, Paul especially, in a Gentile culture so often that was saturated with high levels of paganism, which was connected to sexual immorality, involving everything that you might find in our culture today. So this is not puritanical. This is not some southern preacher standing in a pulpit giving you legalism, law, and trying to bust your groove, amen? That's not what I'm doing. This is God's gift to us. This is God's best for us. God designed sex. Sexual intimacy is a gift from God that he gives not merely to a man and a woman, but to a husband and a wife. And so that gift of sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed within the confines and the boundaries of heterosexual marriage. That is the heart of God on this. Now, recognizing that we're in a culture that would give great pushback on that, this week I have spent time with single people that have struggled immensely in their sexual history. I've spent time with a woman who's in her 60s that lived most of her life as a lesbian until she was radically converted and brought into the light. And the process by which she was brought to the light was that somebody preached strongly in, of all things, a church that was gay. It was a gay church, and a visiting preacher came in and preached on the sin of homosexuality. And though some were angered, she got repentant. When God's truth is preached wrapped in love, it is very difficult to resist. I understand the topic in our culture is controversial. Can't wait to hear what happens when this goes on television. I imagine there will be some pushback. I get it. But I want to tell you, the issue is not cloudy at all in God's heart and God's word. It's very clear. The church needs to do a better job at two things, and I'll get to the text right after this. We need to do a better job of, of a clear representation of God's heart towards those who are in sexual brokenness. It is, they don't need another decade of condemnation, of shaming, of scolding, of picketing, of, 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 of a loves, loveless condemnation coming from the mouths of Christians. They don't need that nor do they need the opposite pendulum swing where we say it's all good, it's all good, it's all about love. And then therefore by our silence, we endorse what is clearly defined as sin. Paul gives us some things to wrestle through here. It was controversial in his day, it'll be controversial in ours. And as I share it, I want you to know I was not saved until I was 24 years old. From age 14 to age 24, I will just say it this way, I lived the life of a reprobate, and all of that 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 lifestyle entails, I participated in. So I'm not coming at you from an ivory tower. I understand this issue both theologically and personally, and I know one thing is sure. When you meet Jesus Christ, he will transform your heart, and he will transform your behaviors, and you will come into alignment and live a life that is both pleasing to him 
and thrilling to you. So Paul's going to give us some strong words about our behavior. First of all, he addresses 2,000 years ago a deception in verses 9 and 10. Watch this. We need to hear this, church. This is not iffy. He says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he adds this, because he knows we're going to say, now wait a minute. He says, don't be deceived. And then he says this, watch. The first thing he says, neither the sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. He says, don't be deceived. They don't inherit the kingdom of God. I knew it would be quiet. Now, I am not avoiding all of the non-sexual sins that are listed there. I have preached through 1 Corinthians twice, or excuse me, once, but I've preached this passage probably five or six times in my life. I will happily, I'm an equal opportunity offender. I'll deal with those sins too. But today we're talking about sexual sins, and this is what Paul is teaching here. He's making a dogmatic statement here, the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write down that those who are locked into unrighteous lifestyles, he's not talking about the occasional sin. He's not talking about someone who is genuinely born again, having difficulty pressing through a stronghold, but they are continuing to seek the Lord and they're being sanctified. He's not talking about the occasional stumbler. He's talking about those whose lifestyle is committed in a pattern of sexual deviancy. And he says, without apologizing, you do need to know that they are not part of the kingdom of God. It is the most unpopular thing to be preached in a, in a setting like this. Because we've been trained that if you prayed that prayer that day, asking Jesus into your heart, then you're saved, once saved, always saved, a little bit extra if you got baptized, a little bit more extra if you got baptized in the Holy Ghost. And therefore, you can live whatever you want because in, in effect, you've kind of got God with his arm behind his back because he told you if you believed on Jesus and asked him into your heart, you'd be saved. I'm going to give you just a, a quick thing here. Satan will happily attend a church. He'll join it. He'll sing the songs. He'll donate money. He will walk the aisle. He'll get baptized. He'll say amen to the preaching. Let me tell you what Satan will never do. By the way, Satan will say, Jesus, come into my heart. He had a problem saying that. Let me tell you what he'll never do. He'll never bow to the Son of God. He'll never surrender. He will never put himself in a position of submission to the king. And friends... That is salvation. Salvation is not repeating a prayer. It is not believing with your mind some gospel facts about Jesus and saying, yes, that is true. Salvation is surrender. And when we come to a place like this, we must address the same deception that was there at Corinth. Corinth was a church that was in a decadent. You take a little bit of Las Vegas, wrap it up with a little bit of a little five points and then tag it to New York, throw in a little bit of uh, LA in it and put it all together. That's Corinth of the first century. And Paul's telling them, hey, all of this stuff that's going on, I want you to know. And by the way, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians, people that are a part of the church, and he says, you need to know that the sexually immoral, heterosexual he's referring to there, and the homosexual, sexual immorality as a lifestyle that one commits to 
is the revelation that that person's never been born again. It's unpopular, but it's clear in Scripture. So he goes a little bit further, and he gives us a little moment in verse 11, because 9 and 10 are kind of hardcore. Verse 11, he emphasizes this transformation. I love this. This is such a just glorious gospel moment. He says, and such were some of you. Such were some of you, but not anymore. Why? Because you're washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. So watch this. In verses 9 and 10, he speaks of the unrighteous patterns of life being indicative of a person who's not in the kingdom of God. They're not saved would be the plainest way to see it. He says, don't be deceived about that. And then he says, some were sexually immoral, some were idolaters, some were adulterers, some were homosexuals, some were thieves and greedy and drunks and revilers and swindlers. He says, they're not in the kingdom. And he said, and some of you guys used to be like that, but hallelujah, not anymore. Well, what happened, Paul? What happened to the homosexual? What happened to the promiscuous, uh, promiscuous heterosexual? What happened to the, the thief and the cheat and the liar and the swindler and the drunk? What happened to him, Paul? He says, oh, Jesus happened to them. They met Jesus and they were justified. That means in heaven, their record was cleared when they bowed to Jesus. His righteousness was attributed to them as their sin was attributed to him or placed on him. A great transaction took place when they bowed to Jesus. And when that took place, the Holy Spirit came into their heart. Literally, they are the temple of God, which we'll touch on in a moment. And the Holy Spirit lives within them. And so now they have the greatest holy being living inside of their bodies they are surrendered and yielded to him and as he is working through them he brought them out of that lifestyle and brought them into a lifestyle of righteousness so Paul could look at them and say yeah no shame on you for what you used to be no no condemnation on you for what you used to be no guilt on you for what you used to be Paul in essence he could be saying I'm not here to unpack your broken sexual history I'm just here to glorify Jesus because what you were back then you aren't anymore because he's done a transformational work in you now we need to be clear here he's giving us two two different people groups the immoral unrighteous lifestyle cannot be the same group of people that he's referring to in verse 11. They can't be that some, a change has taken place. They were this, but now they are no longer this. Why? Because they've been justified. They've been washed. They've been sanctified. Salvation, brothers and sisters, is not getting your ticket punched to heaven for when you die. That is a terrible Reduction of what salvation is. Salvation is a eternity sealing, life transforming encounter that occurs when an, uh, uh, a sinner who's made aware of his or her sin bows before Jesus saying, I have no ground to stand on. I surrender. Save me. And when that happens, it is an overhaul. It's not a tweak, it's not polish. It is a death and a resurrection. And what comes up in salvation is different than what went down in, in the death. And so Paul is, he's emphasizing this. Listen, I just want to tell you, I love the fact, mm, Jesus, I, I, I love the fact that I know a lot of the people that I do life with in this assembly. I know what you were, and now I get to know what you are. 
I love the fact that, man, hallelujah, you're, you're, not, you're not a drug-addicted booze hound anymore. You're not the town harlot that every guy paints as an easy mark anymore. You're not the thief. You're not the prisoner. You're not the heterosexual dude who's trying to tag as many people as he possibly can. You're not the homosexual or the lesbian anymore who believe the lie because of, of satanic influence and indoctrination. You're not that person anymore. I love the fact that now you're a sister, you're a daughter, you're a brother, you're a son. And you know your identity. Look, I can look back, I can acknowledge what I used to be. Some of that data never comes off the hard drive, all right? I can remember moments and times and seasons and encounters, and I hate the memory of it. I don't ever go back there willingly. Sometimes the enemy likes to drag it up and say, look at this, remember who you were? And I typically do this. I, there are times where accusation about who I once was comes against me so strong, I finally just have to say, devil, go to hell with that. Send them back where he's sourced from. If, if the enemy wants to accuse you, just tell him to take it up with your advocate, your defender, your attorney. And say, hey, you're going to have to talk to my advocate. He does all my defending these days. And Paul was able to say that that's what they used to be. But he did say this. That's who we were. When you come into Jesus Christ, you're no longer what you were. You are, according to Paul's letter to the uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17, you're a new creation. The old is passed away, and all things are becoming new. So none of us have arrived yet, but we have begun. And so that transformation begins to become evident, and so our behaviors change. Now he's going to get very precise. He's going to give us instructional words about our bodies. We have to hear this from the word as the authoritative word, not from Jeff, not from Newbridge, not from a consensus of human beings that got together and tried to frame up an acceptable moral standard. We have to take it as the authority of God upon generations, all generations of believers. He's going to talk to us about our actual bodies and what we do with them in the context of sexuality. And so the first thing that he tells empowered Christians these are commands to Christians who, because we are Christians, we actually have the ability to live in the way he's about to prescribe. It doesn't matter what our, our tendencies are. I'm very sympathetic to those that struggle with same-sex attraction. I want to be very clear here. Struggling with same-sex uh, same attraction is not a sin, it's not. It is what do you do with that temptation? N nor is being tempted to get drunk a, um, a sin for the person that used to get drunk. It's not the temptation. Temptation is not a sin. It is what we do with it. So we're living in a generation where when I was growing up, there, the term same-sex attraction wasn't there. You were either straight or you were gay. And now we have such... A myriad of nuances is about sexuality and gender that it literally is a topic that I feel like personally as a minister of the gospel, I'm at least five to seven years behind on knowing how to approach this. And as we move forward, the church in general, it won't be a luxury. It's not going to be enough to say, you know, hey, don't be gay or stop sleeping around 
or you're a boy or you're a girl. Now, that may be the bottom line truth and it may be the, the crux of the, of the imperative, stop doing sin and start doing righteousness, I get it, but that's not going to be enough to meet people where they are, to meet them in their brokenness, to meet them where they're confused, to meet them where they've been lied to. My, my daughter is 19, my son is 14. Their whole life, the culture has been pumping lies against them concerning their sexuality, their whole life. When, when I was growing up in the 1970s, I remember being in school and the plumb line for sexuality in the culture was still the biblical framework. Now, it was pushed back, it was rebelled against, it was refuted, but it was still the standard. That is no longer the case. Guess what? There isn't a standard in the culture anymore. Each individual is their own standard. So the communication of the culture is, what do you identify as? What makes you feel good? Who do you love? And then it gets into this thorny place where there is no standard, which is, in essence, it's, it's sexual chaos. And the Lord is calling the church to say no to that and to say yes to what his heart produces, which is very clear in Scripture. And so Paul tells us here to live with this restraint. Let me move through verse 12 quickly. He gives this strange uh, statement, and it's in quotes in the English Standard Version, which indicates that the translators believe it was a common saying of the day. All things are lawful for me. Paul says, mm, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, the culture says. Paul says, I will not be dominated by anything. So here is the culture. The culture is saying this in essence. We can do whatever we want. And by the way, I believe he's telling that to the church because he's refuting a cultural norm that is infiltrating the church. And he's saying, I know the saying, all things are permissible. All things are allowed. But Paul says, all things aren't wise. He says, all things are not um, helpful to me, prudent for me. And then he adds this, I'm not going to be brought under the power. I'm not going to be dominated by anything. So Paul recognizes that even the great apostle, should his thinking be open to the, the communication of the culture, just says, hey, do whatever you want to do. Paul says, I'm not going to let anything bring me under its power. And it's in the context of sexuality. So friends, we could apply this a thousand ways. And again, I'm not really you know, picking apart stuff, but I also don't want to be so vague that people leave here saying, what did he just spend an hour talking about? I want to be very clear. There is a power dynamic concerning what's going on in the sexual practices, the sexual philosophies, and the, just the sexual communication in our culture. There is, at the core of the power of the philosophy of our culture, at the core of that is the enemy. It is an enemy strategy who hates love, so he usurps it with lust. Who hates what God designed for a man and a woman in the boundaries of marriage to be able to enjoy each other. He made our anatomies, our physical anatomies, designed to bring pleasure to each other as husbands and wives. And the enemy hates God. Listen, I'm, I'm going to tell you this. And I told you it would be some awkward moments. Sex in a marriage is beautiful and spiritual. There's a one flesh dynamic that isn't just a physical reference. 
that literally your soul becomes intertwined with those that you might be sexually involved with. That's either going to be good if you're married or it's going to be negative if you're intertwining your soul with people that God never intended you to be intertwined with. Call it a soul tie, call it whatever you want. But the reality is, is at the core of the communication and the philosophy of, of our culture's sexual expression is the enemy. He wants to bring pain. He wants to bring heartbreak. He wants to bring defeat. And what Paul is recognizing is, I'm not going to mess around and allow that kind of power to come into my life. And so he's got a holy determination that he's going to possess his vessel in honor. He says, okay, the culture may say it's all good. All things are lawful. We would have said 10 years ago, it's all good. Remember that phrase? This is a stupid phrase, by the way. <laughs> it's, it's not all good. Matter of fact, there's some stuff that's really, really bad, but it's all good just simply means, hey, whatever. And that's not the heart of God. Well, he goes a little bit further, and this will probably maybe just unpack this a little bit more because he's talking to us about our bodies sexually. He says, not only should we live with restraint, but he reminds us why. Because we're made for eternity. We're not primarily rooted in this temporary age. So he says, live for eternity. And he gives another in quote statement. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And then Paul adds, yeah, and God will destroy both one and the other. And then he adds this, the body is not meant for sexual immorality. The body is meant for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And then he reminds us of our destiny. And God raised up Jesus, Jesus the Lord, and will also raise up us up by his power. So you've got this phrase that was common again in Paul's day. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And it was just a common phrase. Bible scholars teach this. I this is not original to me. I don't want you to think I'm smarter than I actually am. I read this. But the statement seems to be hinged to their attitude, the growing atti prevailing attitude about sex. Yeah, you eat some food, that's what your stomach's made for. Yeah, you have some sex, that's what your loins are made for. Yeah, what's the big deal? It's just physical. Paul, salvation's spiritual. Salvation's just about faith, man. The body doesn't have anything to do with it. So what does it really matter if I sleep with my girlfriend? I'm serving God, I'm worshiping God, I read my Bible, what does it matter if I sleep around? What does it matter if I'm a, I'm, I'm a homosexual? What does it matter if I, this is the person I love? What does it matter? I love God, God loves me. And so it is the mindset that says, I get to do with my body what I want because salvation is primarily spiritual and the body doesn't really matter. And Paul pushes back on that. This is what he said. He says, no, actually, your body in one form or another is with you your entire salvific history. You're in it now, and Jesus is in it now, and you're going to be in that body, howbeit it will be glorified for all of eternity. Paul says, God's going to actually raise that body up, that it is something he has given you, given you and it's eternal. So he, what he's doing there is he's pushing back on the idea that what we do with our body doesn't matter. Now, you think that that's intense. I am, we're all about to cringe. This, the next couple of verses are some of the most kind of verses in all of Scripture, and I'm not going to try to make them uh, more pleasant. 
Because I'm going to tell you, there, there's probably some people in here, and this is going to crystallize in your spirit when you hear it, and you're going to be able to see why God calls us to repent from fornication. You're going to be able to see why God doesn't want you, you to spend any more of your days looking at pornography and masturbating. Yeah, there'll be more words like that, so I, I warned you. Listen, the reason why we have such a problem is because the church is just <laughs> too polite to say things like that. And so the culture becomes the authoritative voice on sex while the church is like, we don't talk about this kind of stuff. Well, we don't talk about it and it's getting higher and higher in volume in the church and in the culture. Yeah, I'm ready. I'm just, I'm waiting. Listen, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm being so serious here. This is God's offer of freedom to some folk. There, there's, there is no condemnation coming forth from this pulpit today, nor is there condemnation coming on you who are being primed for repentance. See, Jesus came to deliver us out of condemnation, but the fact that there's no condemnation doesn't mean we don't talk about holiness and righteousness and deliverance and temperance and all of that stuff. So Paul releases some enlightening words about our, our belonging. Now, I want us to get this. Jesus, help right now, please. Lord, we're going to talk about you. Help right now. Help us to see. Help us to see this and to get it. Holy Spirit, bring transformational revelation on these verses. Take it from being a rule to being a call to love. Do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. We belong to the Son. Listen to what Paul says. He's talking primarily to men here. He says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? You've all heard the phrase, we are the body of Christ, right? That's all Paul's saying. Your bodies, you are part of the body of Christ. Shall I then take the members, body parts of Christ, and make them attached or members to a prostitute? He says, never, never let it be. Or do you not know that he is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord, Christians, us, he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Let's, let, me just, let me just be me for a second and try my best to, to do this justice. Wherever we go, we take Jesus with us. And Paul is, is setting up the scenario that is probably designed to provoke a horrific sense of, no, don't say that, Paul. But he has to say it. What is he saying? He's talking about the cult prostitutes that were common in Corinth. And just because you may not be sleeping with a prostitute doesn't mean that there's no application i want us to recognize he's talking about unlawful sex any sex outside of the bounds of marriage just to be clear the bible uses the word fornication which translates the greek word most times porneia from which we get our word pornography and it describes any sexual activity outside of heterosexual monogamous marriage. 
That is what the whole of Scripture frames up. God says, husband and wife and the marriage bed, I'll bless it. It's meant to be beautiful. It's meant to be pleasurable. It's meant to be fruitful. I'm going to bless it. And, and husbands and wives should enjoy that gift from God. But literally to the unmarried, he, he prescribes no permissible outlet for sexuality. Now, automatically, our inner American liberated, ain't nobody going to tell me what to do, protests. And says, well, what am I supposed to do with my, my, my natural drive, my sex drive? You're supposed to get married. You're actually supposed to get married. 1 Corinthians 7 actually says, if you cannot contain, then get married. It's better to get married than to burn in lust. There's a reason why folks got married at 15, 16, and 17 in Jesus' day. And really up until 100 years ago. They got married early. And, and listen, I know, I know it's, it's a little humorous, but it's actually true. The idea that hormones, sexually stimulating hormones, can start coursing in your body around age, age 11, 12, 13, 14, and you can make it to age 30 and not live in some kind of intermittent... Listen, you've got to have the Holy Ghost and the gift of singleness, but most people can't do that. And so the Lord is... So, why am I yelling? <laughs> the Lord is so practical that he says, in order, 1 Corinthians 7, I think verse 16, in order to avoid fornication, let every woman have her own husband and every husband have her own wife. Now, I've got some parents of teenagers that are really mad at me right now because <laughs> Pastor Jeff said I can get married. That's... So back to the text. Jesus, Paul is saying this. He's saying, wherever you go, you take Jesus with you. Perish the thought that you would take your body, which is part of his body, and attach it to the body of somebody sexually. Can I say it this way? In, in the spiritual realm, sexual sin, when a Christian engages in it, literally makes Jesus watch. It's meant to evoke that sense of nauseating dread. All of it, friends, listen. That's why it all comes back to love. It's not legalism. It's, we know instinctually as believers, it's been revealed to us, we know that the sexual sins that are so common in our culture, we know that they oppose the heart of Jesus. We know that. He's not changed. He's not a 21st century Western, uh, you know, uh, citizen. He's holy God, and he hasn't changed ever, and he will not change. Somebody's calling me. And when we engage in sexual sin, we say, Jesus, come with me. Internet, pornography, fantasy, masturbation, adultery. We say, Jesus, will you come with me? That, I think, for most of us, if that will center in our heart and we'll recognize, I'm not breaking a rule, I'm breaking his heart. I, I'm bringing my Savior into the midst of something he suffered, bled, and died to remove the power of, and I'm bringing him into it.
And when moments like that can crystallize in our heart, it's a place where we can repent. It's, it's, it's the place where we recognize, Jesus, I'm so sorry. I never, ever, ever want to do that. And I repent now. Help me. Help me, Lord. And he will. There's men and women in the room, in this room with you today, that have been fully and forever delivered from sexual sin. Fully and forever. I could call on 10 right now to stand up and testify. I won't, but I could. And there's way more in the room. And, and, and they're not grinding their way, barely making it every day, just one more day without this, this, or this. That they're free. They've been transformed. But none of them came to that place apart from a moment of repentance that initiated it all. And what the enemy does is the enemy projects the impossibility of the end destination so you never consider the starting line. He says, it's so far away, you'll never be able to do it. Don't be a hypocrite. You've repented before. Don't do it again. It's just failure. It's more noble if you just kind of, you know, just stay in your own place. Don't speak for Jesus because you're a hypocrite. Don't sing for Jesus because you're a hypocrite. Don't do this and this. Just, just stay in your sin because you'll never be able to do it. In moments like that, I almost like to agree with the enemy and say, you're right, I can never do any of this in my own power, including what you just accused me of. So I'm going to bypass my own power, and I'm going to say, Lord, I'm coming to you. I need your power to empower my obedience. And I'm, I'm telling you, he meets you there. I'm, I'm, I know what time it is. Let me, let me give you this. We belong to the Son, but we also belong to the Spirit, verses 18 and 19. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a, a person commits is outside of the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? And then he adds this, you're not your own. You know, when we talk about, I quote this all the time, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. It's in the context of a call from Paul for sexual repentance. The context is not just general. I'm going to need about five minutes. Y'all go ahead. Um, but we're told to flee it. Sometimes that's how you win. Sometimes when the urge hits you, my brother, while you're on your tablet or your phone or your computer, do you know what you do? You drop it wherever you are and you run out of the room. Say, well, I ought not to have to do it that way. Well, it's a whole lot better than what happens if you don't do that. It may not feel brave, but man, I'm going to tell you, it feels holy. Yeah. Ladies, when uh, Mr. Bradley Cooper wannabe down at the office <laughs> is whispering to you and lingering and your husband hasn't been attentive for six months and the plant, the devil plants this dude at work and he's giving you all that attention and you really think he's interested in your heart, and he's not. He's interested in to have one more story he can tell his friends about the latest woman at work that he bedded. What do you do when he starts dripping honey off his tongue? Uh, let, let me tell you what you do. You get up in his grill. You stick that, not the middle finger, but the ring finger. <laughs> the ring finger. Yeah, I better not even try. You stick the ring finger in his face. 
and you say, God has given me a man. No, thank you. No, thank you. Single people, it's the same thing. Listen, you know how single people never end up fornicating? They never get in a place alone with someone they might want to fornicate with. That's how you do it. It's not about riding in on the wings of angels and declaring, I shall never be tempted, I shall never succumb. You know, what you do is you just never get alone with somebody of the opposite sex where the moment might arise. It's literally that mundane and practical. And it works. Because why? We're the, Holy, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says this. He says, don't you know that you... He just said, don't you know you belong to Jesus? Now he's saying, don't you know you belong to the Holy Spirit? He says, you're the temple. Let me put it this way. I'm just doing this for dramatic effect. Every one of you would hide your eyes or get up and run out of the room if pornography in five seconds started being played on these screens. We can't see that stuff in church. This is a holy place. Listen here. You're the temple. You're the temple. You're the temple. It's, it's no less profane in, in, in our solitude and quietness, quietness and hiddenness than it would be to put it on the big screen. But there's something within us that is, revolts at that kind of idea in this holy place. You're the holy place. The temple. You're the place where the Holy Spirit abides. So the last statement is this. You belong to Jesus, you belong to the Holy Spirit, and you belong to God the Father. You're bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Glorify God with your body. Glorify God with your body. This is not about going to the gym an extra six hours a week. Fine if you want to make that application. This is about preserving yourself sexually for the design, the good and beautiful and holy and, and awesome design that God has for you. And, and to glorify God with your body is, not, is to not give your body away to somebody else, thereby joining Jesus to somebody in an act and intertwining your soul with that person. That intertwining of soul is not some charismatic kind of thing. Paul uses it here. He says, when you join together with somebody sexually, there's a one flesh, one spirit dynamic that takes place. There's a joining there. There's a tie that binds there. And only through repentance and renouncing that soul tie can you be completely free from your sexual brokenness. And friends, those are things that the Lord is calling us unto. This is what I hear the Father saying in this time for this community. That what he has for us is gloriously good. My assignment was to call us to the deepest consideration of repentance we've ever had in this area. He is not talking to you about your yesterday. He's talking to you about your right now and everything that comes after. He's not hanging a banner of shame. He's not pinning a scarlet letter on you for what you've done. There's a lot of broken sexual histories in the room. And then there are a lot of futures that are gloriously good. Single people, hear me on this. Your culture has lied to you. Any sexual activity outside of the bonds of marriage, even if it doesn't involve penetration, is sinful. Listen to me. This generation does not believe that oral sex is sinful. Between unmarried people, it is. It's fornication. 
And we have to come to a place where we remove the ambiguity and say, it's just like any other part of our Christian life. We're not asking God, what can I get away with before you get mad? We're saying, Lord, how do I glorify you with everything that you've given me, including my sexuality? Would you stand to your feet this morning? So this is what I want to do. I want to make the invitation broad enough that anybody that wants to can participate. I'd like for some to come this morning and literally kneel at an altar and cry out to God, along with your leaders that have been crying out, Lord, bring about the strong desire for purity and holiness concerning our sexuality in this entire faith community. Lord, I'm asking you to intercede for holiness in your church. You may not struggle with any of this. God bless you. That's awesome. That makes you, hopefully, a humble and grace-giving intercessor that can pray for those that are struggling with it. And I'm going to invite some of you to come this morning and let's cry out to God. For some of you that are struggling with it, I'm a firm believer and striking while the iron is hot. In other words, if the Lord has shown you today what he's requiring of you in this area, it's an invitation. It's, it's not an accusation. It's an invitation because he's going to take it off of you. But the launching pad is a moment of repentance. There is zero shame, judgment, and condemnation in this house right now. The demonic realm has been muzzled right now. This is God's invitation for us to collectively step in. Some of you can be delivered this morning from sexual addiction. Some of you, male and female, this is not no longer a male problem while the ladies are just letting Jeff preach to the boys. This is male, female. This is married, single. This is multi-generational. Nobody's immune in the sense of a generation or a gender. We can step into this right now. There's holiness. And when God calls us to holiness, he empowers holiness. He empowers it. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, take away awkwardness and shame, if it's in the room at all, and release the invitation. Release, Lord, the welcome. Release the, the holy shower that washes clean. Release, Lord, the repairing of hearts. Release, Lord, the purging of sexual history and give a brand new blank slate today, Lord. Let there be a commitment in the singles in this house to honor and glorify you, Lord, with their bodies from this day forward. I break off shame in the name of Jesus Christ by the authority of the one who died that shame would no longer shackle anybody. I break it off of you. You're free in the name of Jesus to consecrate yourself. You have been justified. You will be washed and now consecrated. So, Father, take these moments. Give breakthrough power for the glory of Jesus and in his name. Amen.